following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, today we come to the point in our series of studies on the doctrines of grace, the final point. We're going to be considering the P in the acrostic tulip, the P which stands for the perseverance of the saints, or as R.C. Sproul put it, the preservation of the saints. As we saw a few studies ago, the doctrines of grace or the five points of Calvinism were not randomly written up one day by bored or devious men who wanted to split the church of Jesus Christ. These five points of doctrine arose as a response and as a counter to the five points of doctrine that the followers of the Dutch seminary professor James Arminius presented to the state of Holland in the form of a protest or a remonstrance. And after seven months of pastors and theologians from the churches of Holland comparing the teachings of the Arminians to the standard of truth as it's contained in the scriptures, the five points of Arminianism, as they were later called, were not only rejected unanimously and they were deemed erroneous, but these pastors and these theologians formulated five counterpoints that would later become known as the five points of Calvinism. And if you know me, and you've known me for a while, you know that I'd prefer to be called a Christian. You, pre- you know that I prefer to be called a biblical follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's unfortunate that we have all these <clears throat> titles and classes and divisions today, but for the sake of truth, it's good to delineate what we believe and be able to explain why we believe it. And so these pastors and theologians formulated five counterpoints that would later be known as the doctrines of grace or the five points of Calvinism derived from the French reformer who lived and taught these truths about a hundred years before all this happened, John Calvin, the Genevan pastor. And as we come to the final point this morning, I trust and I hope that you're seeing a common thread recurring in all of this, a recurring truth that keeps popping up in these studies. And it's the truth that God saves. God saves. That little phrase captures the heart of what we have been studying. It summarizes the essence of biblical Calvinism or the doctrines of grace. God saves. Church, it really is that simple. God saves sinners. We do the sinning. God does the saving. Now, there are people who hold to other beliefs, people whose beliefs would align with the beliefs of the Arminians and the provisionists of our day who would affirm that, yes, God saves. But it's only the Calvinist who can affirm that God saves without having to 
either clarify that statement or qualify that statement. The Calvinist can say, God saves sinners, period. You see, when the Calvinist, the man or the woman, the boy or the girl who holds to the doctrines of grace claims that God saves, they don't have to add anything to that statement. But when brothers or sisters whose beliefs align with perhaps James Arminius or Leighton Flowers and the provisionists today claim that God saves, they have to clarify that statement. They have to qualify that statement by saying, well, yes, of course, God saves, but he saves sinners by providing salvation for them. He saves them by making a way for them to be saved. He saves them by making provision for them. Again, to use the illustration we used a few weeks ago, these differing views would think of salvation as a rescue worker on a helicopter dropping a lifeline down to people who are about to drown in the ocean. The lifeline is provided, it's offered, but the person drowning actually has to make use of and lay hold of the lifeline in order to be rescued. And to be fair, as we considered provisionism's view of the Holy Spirit's role in the matter last week, the Holy Spirit is there while these people are drowning, working in the minds of the drowning sinner, working in the mind, seeking to provide what they call illuminating grace, seeking to clarify the truth of the gospel so that the person has sufficient information to make an informed decision, either to follow Christ or to not follow him. But that's the extent of the Spirit's role, according to many people. All he does is he goes as far as making it clear in your mind, clearing the confusion, and then letting you do the rest. And without actually saying it, many people think of the Holy Spirit's role in conversion as that of a life coach or a motivational speaker or a divine cheerleader. As a life coach, he counsels and encourages sinners to make the best decision. As a motivational speaker, he does everything he can to motivate the dead sinner to repent and believe the gospel. And because many people regard faith and repentance as originating in and proceeding from the heart of the sinner, rather than being divine gifts that are granted to the sinner, they think of the Holy Spirit as a divine cheerleader, encouraging sinners to exercise their muscles of faith and to flex their muscles of repentance. He'll grant a sufficient amount of illuminating grace, but that's as far as he will go, according to many. But as we have seen in our studies of the Word of God, no matter how much the Spirit of God shines upon the sinner's heart of stone, no matter how perfectly he presents Christ as a suitable, all-sufficient Savior who promises to receive all who come to him, and no matter how vividly the Holy Spirit describes and portrays the sinner's impending doom and danger, the sinner's heart is made of stone, hard, impenetrable. The sinner's will is enslaved to sin. It's enslaved to Satan. Everything about the sinner is chained to sin and Satan. And the sinner is spiritually dead. I've had people tell me that the only thing the Bible means by sinners being dead is that they're, quote, separated from God. That's all spiritual death means. 
And certainly separation from God is one aspect of spiritual death. But to say that separation from God is all that spiritual death entails is to fall short of everything the Bible means when referring to fallen man as being dead in sin. Let me give you some examples. To be dead in sin is to have a heart of stone. It can't be softened. It can't be penetrated. It can only be shattered and replaced. And that's what God does, according to Ezekiel 36. To be dead in sin and dead to God is to have no spiritual sensation or feeling. The conscience is seared. The conscience is numb. The same way you take a juicy steak and throw it upon a blazing hot surface to make the outer layers of the steak impenetrable. That's how you trap the juices of the steak inside the steak. The sinner's conscience is impenetrable and numb. To be spiritually dead is to be spiritually unable to do anything spiritually good. That's perhaps the hardest thing for many people to swallow, is we don't want to hear about man's inability. We live in a day of the I can. I can do this. I can do that. Well, Jesus says, no one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6, 44. It's not an invisible constraint that God has upon the sinner. The sinner wants to come but can't come. No, the sinner doesn't come because the sinner will not come. The sinner loves the darkness rather than the light. The sinner hates the light and cherishes the darkness, John chapter 3. It's a moral inability. He can't come because morally he is unwilling to come. To be dead is to be unresponsive. Jesus likened the unregenerate Pharisees of his day to being whitewashed tombs full of what? Dead people's bones, just like the vision of Ezekiel 37. So please turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 37 this morning. Ezekiel chapter 37. I'm so glad that the Lord versus, you know, instead of just giving us doctrine, he gives us pictures and visions in the Bible of how this all works and how it all fits together. It's one thing to tell us that he is the one who chooses sinners and saves sinners and redeems and awakens and regenerates sinners. But then he gives us pictures like Ezekiel 37 and shows us how it all happens. So the context here, Ezekiel sees a valley full of dry bones. Dry bones. And the Lord asks him in verse 3, Ezekiel 37, verse 3, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And so the Lord follows up by saying, prophesy or preach over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel then writes, so I prophesied as I was commanded. Friends, do you see what's happening here? The prophet Ezekiel is preaching to a dead, lifeless, unresponsive, inanimate graveyard, a valley full of 
dry bones, indeed very dry, just like we are called to do when we go forth from this place. Again, Jesus likened the unregenerate to tombs full of dead people's bones. And some might object, well, according to your theology, to go out and preach to such people, to go out and proclaim the gospel to a valley of dry bones is a fool's errand, meaning it's a task that has no hope of success. To which we respond, oh, you have no idea. It's most definitely a fool's errand if, and that's a big if, our hope is in the sinner to respond to the gospel. It's absolutely hopeless if we are looking to the dry bones to respond. The task is an exercise in absolute, utter futility if we are looking to the graveyard to respond. But we are not, and neither was the prophet Ezekiel. Listen to what he goes on to say, Ezekiel 36 and verse 7, the latter part of the verse. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Same word in the Hebrew as spirit, ruach, spirit, breath. Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. What a staggering picture of grace. Do you see any hint of provisional language here? Anything about God providing a chance to the graveyard? Anything about God providing an opportunity to be made alive? Any language about God setting before the graveyard an open door? Absolutely not. His word goes forth, his spirit moves upon them, and life is the result. Life is the result. Look at the key phrases in this passage pointing not only to God's sovereign initiative, but God's sovereign action and activity. Verse 5, I will cause breath or spirit to enter you and you shall live. Verse 6, I will lay sinews upon you. I will cause flesh to come upon you. I will cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am Yahweh. And finally, verse 9, come from the four winds of breath, O spirit, and breathe on these slain that they may live. Do you see what happens here? When God's breath or God's spirit enters in, life appears every time. And we know that the context of this passage points us forward to the time of the new covenant based on the promise of the Holy Spirit down in verse 14. Anytime you have covenant language and the spirit being poured out and given in the latter days, it's always with reference to the establishment of the new covenant. So God, if you think about it, through Ezekiel is describing new covenant salvation. Salvation as we know it from the New Testament. 
And that's consistent with language that Peter uses when he describes salvation and regeneration in his first letter. In Ezekiel 37, 5, God says, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And now listen to Peter's perspective. 1 Peter 1, 3. According to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Ezekiel says, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. Peter says he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. The consistent testimony of the word of God is that God saves by sovereign initiative, sovereign mercy, and sovereign action and activity. He does not save by merely providing open doors or opportunities for dead and unresponsive graveyards. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is a God who saves by saving, not by merely providing salvation. Again, if we want to go back to the analogy of the guy in that helicopter dropping a lifeline down to, you know, sinners about to drown in the ocean, the biblical picture is not that at all. The biblical picture is that we're all at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, the deepest part of the ocean. Our bodies are dead, bloated, disgusting. And what happens? Does God toss a lifeline down and the Holy Spirit come along and cheer us on to flex our muscles to respond? We're dead. We're dead. God himself dives in. God himself descends to the bottom of the deepest sea. He gathers his people. He brings them back to shore and he breathes upon them and they're made alive. That's the biblical picture. Well, this morning as we come to the fifth and final point of the doctrines of grace, One of the things I hope that you're seeing in all of these studies and in all of these points, all of these doctrines, is that they are connected. They're connected. And not only are they connected, but they all stand or fall together. In fact, they build upon one another. It's like Jenga. You can't take take one out and have it. It's going to fall. They all stack on top of one another. You see, if sinners... For example, are what the Bible says they are, dead in sin, enslaved to Satan, spiritually blind and morally unable to respond to God because of their radically depraved and God-hating natures, then it follows logically and most importantly, biblically, that God must take the initiative to save them if they're going to be saved. God must take the initiative. If we are who the Bible really says we are in our natural state, then God has to step in because we will not seek God. We will not. And this takes us to the first point. This is unconditional election. God takes the initiative to save us. God unconditionally chooses to save a people for his glory, and he gives them to his son to be his bride, his church, his flock. And this takes us to the third point. The son of God comes. Not to provide salvation for all people without exception, that would, of course, contradict the Father's purpose of election. We talked about a few weeks ago how the unity of the Trinity demands a particular redemption. Jesus came to do the will of the Father, and we know that the will of the Father was not to save the entire human race. 
we have passages that talk about the elect, those who God chose before the foundation of the world. So if the Father chose some and not all, it follows then that the Son, who is one with the Father, one in his saving will, one in his saving intent, one with the Father, then he comes not to lay down his life for all. That's not what the Father did. He came to lay down his life for those whom the Father chose and gave him to be his bride. That brings us to the fourth point, that those who have been chosen by the Father and purchased by the Son are effectually called, monergistically regenerated, that means without, born again without man's help, and irresistibly drawn to the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God awakens and calls and regenerates all those and only those whom the Father chose and the Son died for. The unity of the Trinity in the work of salvation is essential in talking about these doctrines. It, it, it's not, it would not be right for us to take all the doctrines that seem to you know, appear in our pile and then you know, we have other believers that, well-meaning like ourselves, who take you know, all these passages and, well, my pile's bigger. No, 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 I think my pile's a little bit bigger. We have to think of the unity of the Trinity in all of this. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are all united in their saving will and purpose. In their saving will and purpose. To use the language of Ezekiel, the Spirit of God breathes upon God's chosen ones in connection with the Word of God being declared to them. And what happens? They are made alive. They are born again without fail. And as we come to the fifth and final point this morning, it follows naturally, logically, and biblically that all who have been chosen by the Father, redeemed by God the Son, and regenerated by the Holy Spirit will most certainly persevere in faith until they are glorified with Christ. Because God's purposes do not fail. This is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Again, these points were offered initially as counterpoints to what the disciples of James Arminius brought and presented before the state of Holland. They insisted that those who are truly saved can eventually, possibly, lose their salvation by failing to keep up their faith. And to be fair, Arminians since then have disagreed with one another on this point, even up until today. And so you find disagreement within within them. But what ultimately matters is what does the Bible say? <clears throat> putting James Arminius aside, putting Calvin aside, putting Leighton Flowers aside, putting all these people aside, what does the Bible say? Because as our own confession of faith states, the Bible not James Arminius, not Leighton Flowers, not John Calvin. The Bible is the supreme standard by which all human conduct, beliefs, and religious opinions should be tried and tested. And I would say, out of the five points of Calvinism that we've been looking at, it's this one, the perseverance of the saints, that meets us right where we live every single day. Sure, you can... And you should meditate and find peace and solace in the Father's gracious purpose of election. And you can find peace and security in the Son's particular redemption of his people. And you can meditate and contemplate upon the Holy Spirit's effectual call that always results in life and salvation. 
And sure, you're faced with the first point of Calvinism, total depravity. You're faced with the reality of total depravity when you watch the news at night or during the day. Or you talk with people at work or people on the street or the people in your home who are lost and spiritually dead and lifeless and unresponsive to the objective beauty of the glory of Christ. You're talking to them about realities that angels long to look into and they give you a blank stare like, Can this be done already? Can we be over this? You're faced with the reality of spiritual death every day. But as far as where we live and move and have our being, living between our past justification and our future glorification, we find ourselves right smack in the middle of the perseverance of the saints. I say that because every single temptation, every single discouragement, Every single trial presents us with the question, will we persevere in faith to the end? Will we endure to the end? Will I make it to the end? Have you ever thought about that? Will I actually make it to the end? Will I make it? Will I endure? I've shared with some of you the chilling story from the early days of my walk with Christ. Some of you know I was saved at 17. I was a junior at Mayfield High School. I was meeting at that time with a handful of about five young men at a park for Bible study. We were all about to graduate and go our separate ways. And one day, the guy who actually started the study, he came eager to share a dream that he had about all of us. He said that as he dreamed, the five or six of us we're walking in a single file line through Young Park at night. It was dark. It was too dark to tell who was in the order of the line, who was first, who was you know, third, who was fifth. But it was clear in his mind in the dream that all the guys were from the Bible study. And he said that as we walked, one by one, a lion would snatch and take away whoever was in the back of the line. And that continued as we continued walking in the park. We're going, this lion is just taking whoever's in the back, and the next one, whoever's in the back, all the way up until there was one guy standing who didn't get taken away by the lion. And I can remember as a young Christian, listening to this guy and the very proud manner in which he relayed the dream, he then looked at all of us and he said something to the effect of, I'm going to be that last guy standing. I'm not going to be snatched away. You guys are all going to fall away. You guys are all going to be snatched away. And truthfully, that experience has stuck with me for the last 20 years. And the reason I think it has is because as we graduated and went our separate ways, I watched all these guys fall away from the faith one by one. The first one being the guy who told us about the dream. He went to college, was introduced to college life, dorm life, and the world just swallowed this guy up. And I share this not to point out that the one left standing in the dream was me because of my great faith or my enduring faithfulness, but because the reality of making it until the end is one that we face every single day. And I can say without a doubt in my mind, with judgment day honesty, that the only reason I'm still standing in Christ today with my heart still hoping in Christ is because he has held me fast. And he will hold us fast, as we sing so often here. Joseph Hart, one of my favorite hymn writers, put it like this. 
If ever it should come to pass that sheep of Christ might fall away, my fickle, feeble soul, alas, would fall a thousand times a day. It's true. If you could lose your salvation, friend, you would have lost it already. You would have lost it already. So when we speak of the perseverance of the saints, a better title that actually captures the heart of what we're talking about is the preservation of the saints. It's not so much about the persevering faith of the saints. It's about the preserving faithfulness of the Savior displayed in the lives of his saints. And so we're going to turn to where we've turned to for so many weeks now. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Beginning in verse 28. Everyone loves verse 28. But not everyone loves 29 and 30. But verse 28 is anchored in and rooted in 29 and 30. We know that, all, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Amen. Hallelujah. Rejoice. We, everybody loves that. Let's make t-shirts about it. Let's make bumper stickers about that. But theologically, look at what this is rooted in. Verse 29. For those, for those, in other words, it's an explanation. Here's why everything works together for good. For those who love God, because those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And here's further clarification in verse 28. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here's the truth I want you to take away this morning. God always finishes what he begins. What God begins, he finishes without fail. We see that in the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapters one and two. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He didn't start the creation and then get distracted. He didn't start the creation and then walk away and let the creation do its thing. He finished what he started. God said, let there be light and there was light. God saw the light was good He separated the light from the darkness, called the light day and darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. When you get to the end of the whole account, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. Finished because God always finishes what he starts. And so God rested because he finished the work that he had done. Well, friends, the same is true regarding his work in redemption. Not just his work in creation, but his work in salvation and redemption. He begins with foreknowing unworthy, hell-deserving sinners, setting his eternal love upon them, predestining them to be conformed to the image of his son. And he promises to complete that work. That's why the end of that golden chain in verse 30 ends with glorification. It ends there because God finishes what he starts. Those whom he predestined, he called And they all end up glorified. It's unbreakable. Those who are predestined will be glorified. They will persevere. They will be preserved. That's what's hinted at in the text. If you're called, 
You're justified, you will be glorified. You might go through a bumpy road. You might go through thorns and thistles and everything hellish on this side of eternity. But God will glorify you at last. He will make you one with his son. You will behold the glory of Christ and you will be like him when you see him as he is. There's a beautiful promise in Psalm 138, verses 7 and 8. The psalmist says, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. And then verse 8, what a sweet promise. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. What's the work of his hands in the context here? The sinner, the believer, the child of God. God does not forsake the work of his hands. We are his work, right? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. You see, you're not just... You didn't, you're not just, uh, you know, I, got, I accidentally got saved one day. Your salvation is not accidental. You didn't accidentally receive life from heaven one day. You weren't just walking along and, oh man, I, I, whoa, I stumbled across salvation today. That's not how it works. You are his workmanship. He began a good work in you and he'll finish it. You're the work of God's grace, the work of God's hands. There's another promise in Isaiah. Chapter 46, verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. He says, even to your old age, I am he. Even to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. Beautiful. The Lord, even in your old age, believer, will carry you sustain you to the end because we're his workmanship. We are his workmanship. The new covenant that has been sealed in the blood of Christ promises this. Jeremiah 32, verse 40. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. Everything we just celebrated in the Lord's Supper this morning is what I'm going to describe here. In other words, there's a reason we come up here every single week to celebrate the Lord's Supper and the New Covenant. This is not just church snack time. It's remembering our covenant that we enjoy with God through the shed blood and broken body of our Savior. Listen to the promise. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. What a promise. God finishes his work. He sustains us to the end. Listen to how Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And Paul would tell the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, beautiful benediction. He says, now may the God of peace himself Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body 
be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now notice this promise. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will certainly do it. He will keep your body and your soul and your spirit in the day of Christ. He will surely do it. When Paul, in his last letter to Timothy, is reflecting upon his coming death, this is what he says. As he's facing the prospect of martyrdom, he writes this, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. This guy was about to be martyred, and yet he says, that's not the end. The Lord will bring me out of that into glory. Friends, do you remember the passage we keep going to in the Gospel of John for like unconditional election and particular redemption and total depravity and all these other, all these other doctrines? John 6. Turn with me to John 6 really quick. John chapter 6. Listen to verse 39. These are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Why do we believe that true saints, true believers will persevere to the end? Because it's a matter of Christ losing them or not. It's not just about you not making it. It's about will Christ keep his own until the end? And will he raise them up? And according to him, he won't lose anyone. Isn't that good to know? Isn't that good to know that we are in him, in his hands, and he will not lose us? He will not leave us and he will not lose us. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Turn four chapters to chapter 10. Again, we're considering the perseverance of the saints from the lips and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Verse 27 of John 10. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Glorious promise. You, believer, are in the hands of Christ you are in the hands of the Father, and nothing, no one will snatch you from these hands. You are safe. We are told that Jesus in Hebrews 7.25 is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he ever lives to make intercession for them. You realize that the perseverance of the saints, the preservation of the saints, is rooted in the intercession of the Son of God, our High Priest. The reason you will make it, believer, until the end, the reason you will arrive on heaven's shore, bruised, yes, broken, yes, sick of sin, yes. But the reason you will arrive safely to shore is you have a high priest who is interceding for you, and his intercession is effectual. His prayers don't meet a brass ceiling. His prayers are answered. Now, all of this raises some questions. Does it mean that our faith is not involved in any of this persevering? Does it mean our faith and our effort is, is irrelevant? Because this certainly doesn't mean that we can be careless or presumptuous. 
No one should be walking around thinking, I'm going to continue in sin because I'm going to make it to the end anyways. I'm going to continue to indulge the passions of my flesh and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes because I'm going to make it until the end anyways. I believe in eternal security. No, friends. There are warnings on top of warnings on top of warnings in the Bible. One of them being in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know, Paul says, to the church? He's not talking to people on the streets of Corinth. He's talking to the church. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Why does he have to say that? Because the tendency is to be deceived. That it's okay to walk in the realities of which he's going to speak. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He says that in the context of the local church, meaning if you're involved in any of these realities consistently without a Godward repentance, You will not inherit the kingdom of God. You will be one of those that Jesus tells on the last day. I never knew you. Depart from me. He says in Galatians 5 regarding the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Paul says, I warn you as I warned you before, church, that those who do and practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The writer to the Hebrews says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care. Watch yourself. Examine yourself. Put the mirror of the word in front of you to make sure that these aren't characteristics that define you as a professing believer. Because no matter how loud your profession, that does not make you immune to hearing the words, I never knew you. As we're starting the Gospel of Matthew here shortly, we'll come across chapter 7. And these people had a loud profession. They said, Lord, Lord, not just Lord, but Lord, Lord, meaning it's an emphatic profession. You're my Lord. You're my Lord. Lord, Lord. He says, I never knew you. I never knew you. We have to hold fast to these warnings because the end has not come. We have not crossed that finish line, beloved. So warning after warning. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, it says, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume God's enemies. We have to take the warnings into account. We have to strive. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In the book of Revelation, the church, the believer, is constantly referred to as the conqueror, the overcomer, right? In all the letters, let him who has an ear... Let let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. There are battles to be conquered. There are battles to be fought. There are battles to be won. We're not negating any of that. We must be overcomers. We must be conquerors through him who loved us. We must be conquerors 
by his word, by the testimony of the gospel, by holding fast to our profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You read about the parable of the sower, right? We're going to see that in a few weeks, months, probably. Parable of the sower. So, uh, seeds are sown, right? Matthew chapter 13. Some seeds fall by the wayside. The birds take them away. But the other seeds, all of them spring up. One of them, however, is actually bears fruit and endures to the end. Turn with me to Matthew 13 really quick. Matthew chapter 13. I want you to see this in action. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 13. This is the chapter of all the parables. Verse 3. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, for they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now skip down to the explanation of the parable, down in verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, that's Matthew's language for the gospel, the word of the kingdom, and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Many of you have experienced this. You are excited to share the gospel with someone and they walk away with no retention, no interest. That's that here. This is what was sown along the path. Listen to the second one, though, verse 20. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. It's possible, he's teaching us here, for lost people, unregenerate people, to get excited about the gospel to get excited about forgiveness and heaven and everlasting life. Yet, verse 21, he has no root in himself. In other words, it doesn't penetrate. There's no, there's no penetration. There's no inward receiving. But endures for a while. That always scares me every time I read that. There are people who endure for a while. These were the guys that I talked about earlier at the Bible study. They endured for a little while. And, verse 21, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Verse 22, third one. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Mark actually says, and the desires for other things enters in and chokes the word, and it does not bear fruit. Now, a lot of people are mistaken in saying, well, these are all believers. It's just some aren't fruitful. It's impossible. 
those who are connected to the vine will bear fruit. If they are not bearing fruit, they will be pruned by the vine dresser, John 15. They will bear fruit. This is not a Christian who does not bear fruit. This is an unbeliever who hears the gospel, believes it for a while, but then competing affections come in. Desires for this, desires for that, enter in and choke the word. The thorns have no, you know, we, we think that the thorns are, you know, pricking and poking the, the, the plant. No, it's that they consume everything in the person. Choke the word. No water. Well, here's the last one. As for verse 23, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, another 30. This is the one that endures to the end, holds fast to it with patience and perseverance. We persevere in faith, friends, and are preserved by faith. Christian read it earlier. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his abundant mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, God guards us through faith. He preserves us through faith. Some might say, well, that's odd language. God is guarding me by my faith. Well, be careful with that. Because we read in Galatians chapter 5 that faith is the fruit of the Spirit. Listen to Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faith. The Spirit produces faith in us. And we believe and we hold fast. We have promises and warnings. Another warning is in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now listen to this. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. You must endure to the end. And people might ask, and this, it's a perfectly good question, what about those who fall away? I used to know a guy that was zealous about God and zealous regarding the word of God and the gospel of God, and he's fallen away. Did he lose his salvation? What did he lose? No, he fell away from his profession of faith. He fell away, not from the living Christ, who said, none can snatch them out of my hand. He fell away from a profession of faith in Christ. And a profession of faith in Christ is very different from a possession of faith in Christ. Having faith and professing faith are two different things. John put it like this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. Peter talked about the false teachers who had a profession of faith. They appeared to have come to Christ initially. But then he says in 
2 Peter 2.20, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled and overcome by these things, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. And then he concludes, what the true proverb has what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the pig, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. There is no change of nature. The pig has always been a pig. The dog will always be a dog, but that's not biblical salvation. Biblical salvation is that there's a transformation, a rebirth that takes place, a new nature that's given, so that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So where are we called to live? We are called to live in this arena, you could say, of persevering in faith, being preserved by God, by looking to Christ, our high priest who is interceding for us, our good shepherd who is feeding us and nurturing us and keeping us and guarding us, preparing tables before us in the presence of our enemies. That's what he does. Goodness and mercy are following us all the days of our lives. These aren't, you know, just abstract, you know, a, a, a gas cloud of goodness and mercy. He's talking about the shepherd following us, following us. It's a husband, our heavenly husband, pursuing us, washing us with his promises in the water of his word, preparing us for the great day of consummation. Paul says, therefore, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Believer, how are you going to make it until the end? You're going to make it because God is working in you. He's working in your desires, your affections. That's what it means when he says he's working in us to will, to desire, to, to long for certain things. He's working on our affections to love what he loves and to abhor what he abhors. That's what he's doing in us. That's how he preserves us until the end. So don't ignore don't quench the spirit as he's working holy affections in us. Build upon them. Make use of them. Run with them. Let them work themselves out of your life. Well, I want to end by looking again at Romans chapter 8 and another passage. Romans chapter 8, we, conti- we left off in verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. They do make it. And Paul, as he's writing through his fellow brother Tertius, it's as though they step back and I have a sneaky suspicion that maybe they're worshiping at this point. Because you can't walk away from verse 30 without your heart exploding with praise. And he says, what then shall we say to these things? Have you ever been so impacted by a truth in the word of God that you step back or you're in fellowship and you say, what, what do we say to these things? That's, that's, the kind of gospel, that's the kind of reaction that the gospel 
elicits. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is not a verse for the prosperity preachers to say, he'll give you a Rolls Royce, he'll give you this watch, he'll give you this estate, he'll give you these lands. The all things in the context of Romans 8 are the all things that you need in order to make it until the end. The all things between your past justification and your future glorification. You need wisdom? It's nothing for God to give wisdom. He's already given you Christ. You need a fresh, contrite heart that hates sin? Of course he'll give you that. He's already given you the heart of heaven. Christ, his son. He's given you his son. He's going to give you all things necessary for you to be glorified in the end. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will we make it to the end? Will anything, anything separate us from the love of Christ? I've had people tell me regarding John chapter 10, Oh yeah, the son holds you in his hand. The father holds you in his hand and nothing can snatch you, but you can certainly walk away from that. You can throw yourself out of his hands. Friends, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Look at this. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, what a span of awesome realities there, death or life, and that means anything in life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come. Do you have anxiety, believer, about the future? Let's be honest, some of us struggle with anxiety when it comes to the future. What will happen to, to me down the road? What will happen to my children? What will happen? Neither death nor life, neither the present nor the future. Because he holds the future. Nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the perseverance and preservation of the saints. You know, when I look at the epistle of Jude, 25 verses, I think of the epistle of Jude as the epistle for the kept ones. Turn to Jude with me. So you're in Romans, turn to the right, go to Jude. And I want you to notice this thread in this short little letter. Never underestimate a letter by its length. Verse 1. Can't even say chapter 1 because it's really not a chapter, is it? Jude, a bondservant or a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now listen to how he addresses the church of God. 
to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Some of your margins might say, or kept by Jesus Christ. And in the Bible, both truths emerge from the pages of the Word of God. You are kept for Jesus Christ, and you are kept by Jesus Christ. And now, skip down to verse 17. After he warns about false teachers and the dangers therein, he says, But you, verse 17, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. They don't have the Spirit. And now listen to this this exhortation. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. See, they didn't just put it on cruise control. They're not just coasting until the end. There's action to be... To exert, there's, there, there's force to be exerted. We, we, there's, there's stuff we're called to do as believers. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Number two, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves. There it is. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Do you see how in a span of 21 verses, He attributes the keeping to the Christian and the keeping to the Christ who has saved the Christian. And so we can never come to a point of, well, keeping is the work of the Christian. I have to keep myself in the love of God. Well, you're kept for Jesus Christ and you're kept by Jesus Christ. It's not either or, it's both and. Keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And now notice how he ends this little epistle to the kept ones. Verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen sandwiched between those who are kept for Jesus Christ and God who is able to keep you from stumbling is the Christian's role of praying in the Holy Spirit, waiting for the mercy of our Lord that leads to eternal life, keeping ourselves in the love of God, building ourselves up in our most holy faith. And so, friends, he will hold us fast. When we fear our faith will fail, Christ will hold us fast. When the tempter would prevail... He will hold us fast. We can never keep our hold through life's fearful path. For our love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Our Savior loves us so. Those he saves are his delight. Precious in his holy sight. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. That's why we sing these truths again and again. We've been bought by him at such a cost He will hold us fast. I want to conclude by giving you five practical steps to persevere until the end. And these all emerge from the the letter to the Hebrews. And I specifically picked the letter to the Hebrews because of one statement in there 
In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36, the writer says, you have need of endurance. You have need of perseverance. Here we are this morning talking about the perseverance of the saints. And we look to the letter to the Hebrews because the writer says, of all the things you need, beloved, you need perseverance. You need endurance. You're about, you're on the verge of a dangerous, dangerous outcome. They were tempted, as you know, to turn away from Christ and to go back to the old Mosaic system. The law, the sacrifices, the priesthood. He says, you have need of endurance. You have need to keep going. And he calls them to five things. He calls them to, number one, a devotion to the word of God. How will you persevere to the end? You must be devoted to the word of God. And he puts it like this in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. When we hear God's voice, we must not harden our hearts, as chapter 3 of Hebrews says. We must not ignore him who speaks to us through his word. You want to persevere to the end, you have to be devoted to the word of God. Not just reading it, but not just making your way through it, but it making its way through you. Secondly, not only a devotion to the word of God, but a devotion to the throne of grace in prayer. A devotion to the throne of grace in prayer. Chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. We have a high priest. Therefore, let us with boldness approach the throne of grace will we'll find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. How will you endure to the end? By a consistent life, a dependent life, leaning upon the Lord Jesus Christ at his throne of grace in prayer. That's the second means. Thirdly, we must be devoted to fellowship. Christ-centered, biblically saturated fellowship. Look at chapter 3, verse 13 of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, as it relates to fellowship and what happens when the saints are gathered together. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. We'll start at verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another... Every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So often we think of Christian fellowship as just Christian chilling, just, just hanging out, talking about the news, talking about the week, talking about surface things. But true biblical Christian fellowship consists in you sharpening your brother, sharpening your sister, encouraging one another, praying for one another, saying, how can I pray for you this week? Do we need to fast together this week to overcome a certain sin this week? It's sharpening people. It's being deliberate about our walk. It's being deliberate about sin, exhorting one another as long as it's called today so that we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's why later on, this importance of fellowship is heightened again in chapter 10 of Hebrews and verse 24, where the writer says, Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. It's not just about stirring the salsa when we're gathered together. 
It's about stirring up one another to love and good works. To love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So if we're going to persevere to the end, we must be devoted to the word of God, devoted to prayer, devoted to Christ-centered, biblically saturated fellowship. And we must, fourthly, welcome fatherly discipline. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12 really quick. Hebrews chapter 12. We must welcome his fatherly discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 5, he says this. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard, regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which you all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed right and best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For a moment, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If we're to endure to the end, friends, we must not complain about God's fatherly discipline in our lives. That doesn't mean that every time a trial comes, we walk away thinking, oh, God is mad at me or God's angry with me. Now pray, read the word, see examples in scripture of God's discipline, and then you can conclude, you know what, yeah, I need to be weaned off of this self-dependency, or I need to be weaned off of this sin, and therefore it could be discipline. And if it's discipline, receive it, welcome it, don't complain against it. God knows what he's doing and bringing you closer and humbling you. And fifthly, and lastly, stir up hope. Stir up hope. One of the recurring themes throughout the letter to the Hebrews is that this hope that we have that lies beyond this life, beyond the veil in the Holy of Holies, the hope of seeing Christ, our mediator, our high priest, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, he says, again and again. He talks about the patriarchs who were hoping in a city that was to come. Because here, we have no lasting city, Hebrews 13, 14. We have no lasting city, but we seek the one that is to come. Let the hope of that which is to come cause your heart to melt and draw near to God in prayer and praise and in fellowship and in devotion to the word of God. But in all of this, it's not just about a devotion to the word. It's not just about a devotion to prayer and a devotion to fellowship and being welcome, or, you know, welcoming God's discipline. And it's not just about stirring up hope. We're to do all of this with the main exhortation in the book of Hebrews, and that is this, look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Look to him, as you read the word, look to him as you pray, look to him as you fellowship, look to him as you welcome God's discipline, and look to him as you anticipate this glorious 
glorious and blessed hope. And in beholding him, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And this happens by the Lord, the Spirit. Will we make it? By God's grace, we'll make it. Let us hold fast to our Lord Jesus Christ, looking to him as we run our race. Father, we pray that you would seal these truths to our hearts this morning. Thank you for instructing us in your ways. Thank you for warning us of the dangers. Thank you that you love us enough to warn us, to discipline us, to rebuke us, to reprove us when we are wrong, when we are going astray. Thank you that we have one as a good shepherd who follows us with his goodness and mercy all the days of our lives. Thank you that we have one who sits us beside still waters, who restores our souls. Thank you that we have one who leads us in paths of righteousness, who lays us down in green pastures. Father, we thank you for one who even prepares tables before us in the presence of our enemies. When we are wrestling with spiritual foes, forces of darkness, cosmic powers, yet in Christ we are seated in heavenly places where we with joy draw water from the wells of salvation. Father, I pray that you would cause your people to endure. May they be conquerors. May they be overcomers in and through and because of the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we praise you and in whose name we thank you.